0: And welcome to Foreign Romance. In today's episode, we will be diving deep into the Ukraine-Russia war. The conflict has entered its sixth month and there are no signs of either side backing down. We'll be talking everything from Russia's endgame to diplomacy. Today, I am joined by Richard Sakwar, who is Professor of Russian and European Politics at the University of Kent. He is also the author of Frontline Ukraine and Russia Against the Rest. To understand the dynamics of the escalation, let's start off with Professor How Did We Get Here Today.
1: It's a long path, but one which was avoidable and predicted a conflict. To understand it, we have to go back to the post-Cold War peace after 1989, the end of the first Cold War, and the fact that there was not a, certainly from Moscow's perspective, and that's obviously important whether you agree with it or not, an inclusive and equitable peace order. Obviously, the key issue was NATO enlargement, but it isn't just that. It was about the uh, the balance of respect, if you like, and status in the post-Cold War peace. And if you remember Mikhail Gorbachev at the end of the Soviet years, Boris Yeltsin in the 1990s, they really did believe that with the end of the Cold War of ideological hostility, we could have a more multipolar world, which powers like China, Russia, the United States, uh, and the European powers and others could all share equally in the peace dividend, instead of which the you know what people call unipolar system was established the us emerged as the most powerful it's a dynamic system so it's not a question simply of blaming one saudi or the other it's a question of understanding the logic of antagonism and conflict that's the first thing the second thing is that, you know, interestingly enough, Vladimir Putin, when he came to power in the year 2000, was perhaps the most pro leader Russia has ever had. Uh, but gradually, these systemic factors alienated him from the West, and it led to the conflict over Ukraine. But it could have been over Georgia, but it's about NATO enlargement, about security system for Europe, and in status and national law in the international order.
0: Now, when it comes to the topic of NATO, several Russian government officials have been warning for decades that there will be serious consequences if NATO keeps on expanding eastwards, more so into Ukraine. So, did we miss the warning signs? Was this war preventable at all?
1: I wouldn't just say that there were warning signs. They were absolute klaxon sounding uh, the alarm. And so it wasn't as if they were little whispers in the dark. And of course, I think one of the best US diplomats of our time is William Burns, who's head of the CIA today. He uh, warned way back in the early 90s when he was a junior officer in the US Embassy in Moscow, all the way to the time in 2008, when the promise of NATO membership was made to Ukraine and Georgia. He warned that uh, the NATO enlargement was the the most stark of starkest lines uh, that Russia would respond. And, of course, many of the dwaynes of U.S. diplomacy, George Kennan and many, many more, warned that NATO enlargement would lead to severe Russian response. And so, but when it came this year, earlier this year, uh, everybody was surprised, even though, as you say, there were so many signs and, you know, Putin made no secret about it. But just one point of clarification is important. It isn't, you know, NATO as such isn't so much the absolute issue. And there's 2 subpoints to be made there. You know, way back in the 1990s, this leading U.S. diplomat, um, Zbigniew Fuzinski, who had been uh, National Security Advisor under Carter in the late 70s, you know, a get passionate advocate for NATO enlargement, said that, you know, we should do it, but we must establish some sort of overarching framework, which includes Russia. So it doesn't feel excluded. So NATO enlargement could have taken place if that sort of idea had been taken, had been implemented. That's the first thing. And the second thing is that often, you know, security guarantees and so on by the U.S. can take place outside of NATO. So even if Ukraine wasn't going to join NATO for the next decade or two and so on, you know, we're talking about before the war, since 2014, the U.S. and one has to say lamentably the UK poured in weapons, and they transformed the Ukrainian army from a ragtag, bobtail force in 2014 into the most powerful army in Europe today, the biggest, apart from Russia. So it was, uh, you know, this was taking place outside of NATO. That's in particular what was most worrying to uh, Moscow, the Moscow government.
0: Wow, that is an interesting point you raised there. With Moscow now, a month after the invasion, they were approaching the Ukrainian capital, Kiev, but then scaled back and decided to focus on the eastern part of Ukraine, which is widely known as the Donbass region. What is Russia's strategy in the Donbass and why is this region so important to Putin?
1: Uh, Russia's goals, just like Ukrainian goals and Western goals in this war, are shifting and dynamic, so they're not static. As far as Russia is concerned, there is a debate whether they actually thought they could take Kiev in the initial weeks of the invasion. There's obviously the Kiev people say yes, but, uh, you know, there's quite a strong argument, military argument, to say that it was a feint. It was designed to pin down over 100,000 Ukrainian forces in the north while the main battle was going to take place elsewhere. Um, The Russians call it a special military operation. You know, a lot of people condemn the term as a sort of a euphemism for an invasion, and clearly it was an invasion. But it, on the other hand, it, it it is a relatively limited war. Russia has not deployed the mass of its forces yet. What it is, it's it's limited, it's been using proxies, it's been using Wagner Group mercenaries, it's been using the Donbass forces from Donetsk and Lugansk and some other uh, Chechen forces and others, Syrians, even North Koreans for some of the remedial work now. So it, it's a very limited you know operation which could last quite a long time but as for the substance of your question the donbass uh was always a you know a russophone district um and of course after the ukrainians in 2014 launched uh the anti-terrorist so-called atta anti-terrorist operation Operation against them, they're totally alienated and clearly they sought security. And one of the reasons for the war in February was fear that Ukrainian forces, now that they'd built up this massive army, would attack the Donbass, and Russia couldn't clearly allow this. And it was suspected with the covert support of the West in this attack. But as you say now, the war has, has uh, developed not just in the Donbass, but also across the whole of russia so called, that is, Kherson, uh, Zaporozhia, and much more.
0: With Donbass, do you think there are any possibilities of annexation on the table as it was with the case of Crimea in 2014?
1: Whether annexation, you know, the two Donbass republics have their independence has been recognised. There were plans for a referendum on like Crimea style of 2014 for them, whether they want to join Russia. It's not quite clear whether the vote will take place in September, but Russian goals now, it's almost impossible to envisage Russia relinquishing these captured territories because there are now people who are now working with the Russian civil administration, rebuilding the road, health services, schools, and so on. Of course, they're being subjected to a terror attacks by the Kiev nationalist government, murders, assassinations, explosions, and all of that, just to in- ensure the complete misery of these uh, parts for... Uh, a long time to come. But that's why we're talking, we're saying that there has to be some sort of negotiated process, but there's no sign of that and no even pathway to peace at the present time. So both sides are deeply entrenched. The Astonishing thing is that in the past, the United States and European Union would try to f- facilitate peace negotiations. In this case, they're actual strong advocates of war. And so the peacekeeping, peacemaking comes to countries like Turkey um, and possibly in the end, China.
0: It's quite interesting you mentioned the West as advocates of war. And I think the figures would agree the United Kingdom has so far committed 23 Billion pounds in military aid. This is the largest military package, apparently, since the end of the Afghanistan and Iraq campaigns. It seems like the main concern amongst Western leaders is well, if we do not send these weapons, which everyone has agreed is what's helping Ukraine and allowing them to make progress in the war, and so if we stop sending in these weapons to Ukraine and we do not defeat Russia, then who will be next? Moldova, Bosnia. These are the concerns you see shared in the media. What do you make of that?
1: Three points. Ukraine is not making progress in the war. It's losing the war. It's losing the war, uh, not spectacularly, but it's losing. It's uh, utterly irresponsible uh, nationalist and militaristic leadership. is sending a raw uh, recruits and volunteers or people kidnapped off the streets into the front lines who are being meat for Russian Missiles and um, artillery, it's a a catastrophe. Seasoned officers, they've been hammered in the Donbass. Instead of developing the country, they built massive, concrete, reinforced line after line of defences against their own country, against their own country people in the Donbass, in Donetsk and Lugansk People's Republics. But the bottom line is, despite the massive, well, media misinformation which we have in the West. Uh, Most of the rest of the world, you get a more balanced view. Russia is making incremental gains but it's pushing back bit by bit. Uh, the the long lauded attack in Kherson uh, has not taken place. And it won't take place. So that's the first point. So weapons being piled in from the West is only extending the misery. The awful death toll of the Ukrainian people, who are being the men who are being drafted. And of course, from October, women as well will now be part of the draft, which is... Uh, You know, an escalation and the part of this, in my view, an absolutely savage strategy, which the West should be condemning rather than condoning and supporting. The uh, second point you make about, you know, what are the other war aims? It's again, uh, the West is beginning to believe its own propaganda, and as you know, uh, that's nothing more dangerous when people start believing their own lies. The idea of Russia attacking the Baltic republics or Moldova is just absurd. I mean, a key point about this war: it's a very specific attempt to neutralize, from what Moscow's perspective was, a genuine security threat. Now. You don't have to believe that or not, but in, in war as we know, as in peace, what's important is not what is actually the case but what your protagonist actually believes to be the case, and that applies to the West and everybody else as well, of course uh, and in this case, that was the, the, the main uh, concern so, so that's the second point, the idea that you know, Russia is an imperialist power out to grab as much land as possible, um, and that certainly wasn't the aim initially, even in Ukraine, the goal initially, if, if it had been then Russia would have incorporated the donbas uh since 2014 it had every opportunity to do so it didn't uh, and so the idea was to change ukraine and to neutralize it as a perceived security threat as part of the security dilemma of what we began our discussion with. So that's the second thing. So the West's fantasies, I mean, one has to say, and that's the third thing, I suppose, is that the coverage in the West of this is so abysmal, one could hardly believe uh, that the degeneration of the Western media, overwhelming Western media, uh, is, is so shocking that the Western publics have been zombified. And, of course, Ukrainian publics have because uh, opposition parties, opposition media in Ukraine has long gone. And, of course, one has to say in Russia, there's, you know, highly biased media environment, of course, as well. I mean, everyone. So I think this is why, you know, I very much welcome your blog and these sort of discussions, because, you know, it's important that these alternative forms of um, engaging in civic debate, because I think... Again, I suppose that's my fourth point. Open discussion and debate is essential. And so many powers, you know, in Kiev, in London, in Moscow, in Washington, are intent on closing down these sort of debates.
0: I'm glad you ended on that note, which leads me to my next and final question. How likely is a diplomatic solution here? What are the possible scenarios? And is there any way we can find one without being labelled as appeasing Moscow?
1: Or appeasing Washington, by the way. So that's precisely a reflection of this dreadful degradation of the language which we have now, is that, you know, peacemakers, you know, I'm quite active and, you know, my stance has always been anti-militaristic and anti-war. And it isn't naive anti-war. It's anti-war position is a very sustained I think, intellectually coherent and indeed humane position. We have to find a way of de-escalating this militarism, which is building up for many years, by the way, on all sides. For more specifically to your question, which is a fundamental one, is there a pathway to peace today? No. Can Russia be defeated? No. Uh, Can the West be defeated? No. Will Ukraine be defeated or dismembered? Quite possibly. You know, I'm a deep critic of Zelensky, the president of Ukraine's leadership. You know, even though he's lauded in the West, he allowed his country to be plunged into what was a predictable, predicted, and avoidable war. He bears a huge responsibility. And now, the fact that he's using his people as cannon fodder for the purposes of Western powers in London, you know, Boris Johnson, I think, didn't really know where Ukraine was. Neither did Zelensky, but they're using it for personal, domestic political consolidation. Didn't do Johnson any good. But uh, to says we'll certainly continue that. At the moment, uh, the fact is that there's no trust whatsoever between Washington and Moscow, uh, and Brussels has discredited itself as a, as a neutral or impartial interlocutor in all of this, so that's discounted as well. Ukraine, of course, uh, and Russia um, have utter contempt for each other, so there's no chance of them talking to each other. There was a peace um, formula on the table for... Uh, formulated in Istanbul on the 29th of March. But as we know, some of the Ukrainian negotiators who discussed it, you know, on their return to Kiev, one of them was murdered by this nationalist regime, uh, Denis Kriyev, of course, uh, and the other one, another one disappeared. So got accused of, as you say, appeasement or selling out or tre- treachery. That's the sort of environment we're working in. So Russia is now investing in rebuilding the territories it's occupied. It will incrementally possibly push forward. The West can pile in as many weapons as it likes. Russia has got what's called escalation dominance. It's next door. It's not like Taiwan and China, which is a 100 mile 100 kilometers water separating them. It's next door. Russia has mobilized a tiny proportion of its resources. It could fight this war for years at this relatively low level. Uh, Ukraine will be destroyed. And my sympathy is with the Ukrainian people. And um, the Ukrainian people have have to endure this. You know, I'm a great fan. You know, the Ukrainian people are peace loving. They, fo- they, they voted twice for peace. That was the and Poroshenko was elected in May 2014 and Zelensky stood as the peace candidate in April 2019 both betrayed their electoral mandates and instead of which they fell into the hands of the uh, of the of the nationalists so no I'm afraid this war it's not a war of attrition it's not a stalemate russia's pushing ahead bit by bit um it will it is a war of attrition though so no this could go on for years and uh, there's no pathway to peace until we have a new U.S. leadership.
0: There you go, ladies and gentlemen, that's Professor Richard Sakwa. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate your time and insights. If you want to hear more, Professor Sakwa's latest book, The Lost Peace by Yale University Press is available now to pre-order. You can also share your thoughts with me on Instagram or Twitter, at Maida Sharifi underscroll.